Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language that may not be suitable for all listeners. Previously, on Unraveled, the Long Island serial killer. Did you find it odd that now the chief of police was beating you up? It wasn't odd to me because, because he knew I knew the truth. I said, I saw it. He said, you saw what? I said, I saw your fucking DVDs, bro. He's like, no one's ever going to believe you. He's like, I'm a decorated officer. You're a fucking junkie. He said, your whole fucking family's done. I'm going to murder your family. No one's going to care. Just like those prostitutes. And the prostitutes that he was talking about were the women at Go-Go Beach. Absolutely. He was the king. And he'd still be the king today if it wasn't for Christopher Loeb. How does a guy get on the cover of Newsday for having sex with prostitutes and not be fired by the county executive? It actually says, did have sex while on duty in a marked police vehicle. Substantiated. They don't even demote him. Can you believe that? How, on what planet is this okay? That's Suffolk County legislator Rob Trotta reacting to a news report in 2013 about former chief of police, James Burke. In our first episode, you heard about my childhood friend, Chris Loeb, who was assaulted by James Burke after Chris stole his duffel bag filled with incriminating items. Burke would later be convicted of trying to cover up the assault, along with the dark secrets that were allegedly inside this duffel bag. After hearing Chris's story, we wanted to know more about James Burke, who was put in charge of the Long Island serial kill investigation at a very important point in time. It was when the body of Shannon Gilbert was found in December of 2011. 
To date, Shannon marks the last of the known victims to be associated with the Long Island serial killer, or killers. When we took a closer look at what was going on with the investigation at this time, something immediately caught our attention. Chief Burke actually took steps to stall the investigation. He made critical decisions that prevented the case from getting solved. And we wanted to know why. Ten bodies uncovered, and whoever's responsible is still out there. Do you want to start with how this entire thing started? It was a sex party. Police make mistakes. They're only human. But these weren't mistakes. He said your whole fucking family's done. If there's anybody who knows how to kill someone and get away with it, it's a cop. Somebody's just keeping the cover-up going. From ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, a seven-part podcast. We're going to show you that everything you think you know about the Long Island serial killer investigation is wrong. It's a chilly October day in 2020, and I've just arrived at a coffee house in Patchogue, Long Island, to meet with Paul LaRocco, a reporter with Long Island's daily newspaper, Newsday, a paper I used to write for as well. Newsday has been covering the Long Island serial killer story since the first remains were discovered in 2010. Burke is appointed chief very end of 2011. And that, that's a time where the Hugo Beach case is still really high profile because you know, after the initial discoveries in late 2010, uh, late 2011, almost coincidentally a year later, they find additional remains. Larocco says that the Lisk investigation was all that anyone was talking about in early 2012, when Burke was in his first few months on the job. The FBI had been involved, obviously. There were lots of questions over who did this. Is there more than one killer? Um, police were releasing very little information, but obviously uh, there was high public interest in the case. So, you know, we asked Burke what they were going to do with it, and they said all the right things. They talked about welcoming assistance from the federal government. They talked about using high-tech policing tools to really reanalyze what the department had done to date on it. They said it would be a priority, and they were fully committed to it. What was the public reaction to him? It seemed to be positive. I mean, his personality, very energetic, very uh, gregarious. He's someone who people seem to gravitate towards. Even as he's holding, you know, press conferences, you know, with all the reporters, he's talking to them by name and he's looking at them. And you get the sense that he's somebody that liked what he was doing in that prominent position. Rob Trotta, the legislator you heard from the top of the episode, began his career in the Suffolk County Police Department, spending 25 years on the force, spanning roughly the same era as Burke's. He thought himself as the king. He would strut around like, you know, he owned everywhere. He'd show up at union meetings, smoking cigars, meeting with people, you know, on the phone. You know, he walked into, and look, you know, he walked into a room, he sort of commanded it. By all accounts, James Burke seemed destined to sit at the helm of one of the biggest police departments in the country. He was a cop's cop had the full confidence of the county executive and the district attorney, and knew how to connect with the press and the public. He was someone who had grown up, you know, on Long Island. He um, had family that were police officers, and he talked about, you know, the importance of that and how role models like his family led him to a path in law enforcement. Burke trained at the New York City Police Academy and at the age of 21 was sworn in as a New York City police officer. 
Not long after, in the summer of 1986, he was hired by the Suffolk County Police Department. Suffolk County is on the tail end of Long Island. If you drive east from Manhattan, in about an hour, you'll cross the county line. It's a bedroom community that is multifaceted, but the one face it has attempted to portray for decades was that of a county built on law and order, with a very well-paid police department. Here's Rob Trotta again. It's harder to become a Suffolk County cop than it is to get into Harvard University, statistically. Why is that? The unions are very, very, very strong in New York, and they work very hard you know, to get people elected who provide them with very, very large salaries. We used to joke um, that either being a rock star or a Suffolk County cop would probably be on the same par. According to public records, Burke started as a patrolman and worked his way up to an undercover narcotics beat. When he was 25, he was promoted to sergeant, where he was given his first true exposure to community policing. He quickly established a reputation as an extraordinary street cop, going above and beyond, even when he was off duty. It would brag about how he had great relations with the community and he would march in in parades and things on the weekend and everyone knew him and he talked about the importance of community policing. Multiple sources say Burke was very good at making connections with the quote-unquote criminal element. His aggressive style of enforcing the law eventually led to the half-affectionate, half-mocking nickname of Starsky. Based on the character in the 1970s buddy cop show, Starsky and Hutch, Starsky had all the street smarts. He was like a brilliant, he was a smart guy. But if you didn't know, and if you were intimidated by him, you were taken by him. Burke's rise through the ranks was meteoric. He went from officer of the year in the early 90s to one of the investigators in the district attorney's elite squad of detectives in 2002. Burke ultimately, uh, you know, continues to get promoted. And at one point, he's leading the, the district attorney uh, investigators for, uh, you know, for Tom Spoda. Tom Spoda was one of James Burke's biggest supporters. Remember this name, because Spoda's allegiance to Burke is a major part of this story and would eventually get him into big trouble with the FBI. But more on that later. After Burke is promoted to chief, many observed what appeared to be a shift in power inside the department. He had loyalists in, in the police department. When he was kind of surprisingly um, thrust into that leadership role, he had people that he was going to then elevate. And then that kind of left everyone else. If you weren't kind of in his circle, you know, from what we were told, that kind of left you out of luck. And, you know, these are career people, accomplished people, people that believe that they had kind of done the job right. Geraldine Hart, the current police commissioner in Suffolk County, was at the time a senior supervisor at the FBI's Long Island office. She recalls Burke's management style well. His style was just to really kind of insulate himself with the people around him that he could control and, uh, and really didn't want to hear outside opinions, didn't want to hear anything contrary to what, uh, what he believed. But with Burke's success came salacious gossip about the lifelong bachelor's private life and whispers of some embarrassing derelictions of duty. As he's making himself the face of the department, 
There are rumblings of people, you know, who have connections to police who are clearly unhappy. There are people who profess to know things about him and his past that started getting louder and louder and louder as his role became more prominent and more prominent. You always heard the stories, but you hear the, the rumor mill back then that he had, he had some issues while he was on the job. The voice you just heard belongs to a retired detective named John Oliva. John joined the Suffolk County Force in 1995 before climbing the ranks to detective. He opened up about some of the things he heard about Officer Burke before he became Chief Burke. The rumors you referenced as far as what you'd heard about him, were they benign or were they serious rumors? And were they about his personal life or were they about his professionalism? I guess on, uh, on some occasions his personal life would come into his uh, professional life, you know, with, with some of the uh, things that happened. This isn't the first person to let us know there were other sides to James Burke. Sides that painted a very unflattering portrait of the man who ascended to the highest position in law enforcement in the county. Alexis and I interviewed dozens of individuals and spent countless hours working to corroborate the stories we were being told. And in doing this research, we came across an internal affairs report from 1995, 17 years before James Burke was made chief. Inside, we find the scandal that sparked those rumors. And it is wild. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. 
The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. You can assume that James Burke was appointed as chief of police because of his impeccable policing record. But we kept hearing stories about a past that was filled with transgressions and salacious rumors that frankly sounded too shocking to be true. But it turns out they are true. And we found the official documents that proved it. 19 years before he was put in charge of the Lisk case, James Burke was the focus of an internal affairs investigation. Here's Rob Trotta who recalls how it all started. A prostitute came in and were making, was making allegations that there was a sergeant in the first precinct who was smoking crack, drinking, and had a prostitute as a girlfriend. So my sergeant at the time uh, called Internal Affairs. Internal Affairs came down, grabbed her, and interviewed her. The sex worker, looking to lessen the charges she was facing, offered investigators information about a quote-unquote dirty cop. She knew that he was an officer in Suffolk County's first precinct, but only knew him by his street name, Starsky. The sex worker also provided the name of Starsky's alleged girlfriend, another sex worker named Lorita Rickenbacker. In the spring of 1994, Rickenbacker was serving time in the neighboring Nassau County Correctional Facility for drug and prostitution offenses. We discovered that she had a long record, close to 30 arrests. When looking at her mugshots, you see a woman who appears battle-weary, a woman who has faced the police many, many times. A Suffolk County judge signed an order to bring Lorita from prison to police headquarters. There, she and Burke would both be questioned about their relationship. We obtained a copy of the internal affairs report, though much of it is heavily redacted. Entire paragraphs hidden behind long stretches of black boxes. Here's what James Burke told the internal affairs investigators. He admitted to having a six-month relationship with Lorita. He detailed how they would hook up. He would respond to her calls on his beeper, pick her up, then take her to either a local motel, to his home, or to various parking lots where they would have sex. He claimed that he had no knowledge of her criminal past. Lorita also admitted that she had an ongoing relationship with Burke. The rest of her statements contrast sharply with his. 
The conclusions made by the internal affairs investigators left us in disbelief. Number one, that Sergeant Burke engaged in a personal, sexual relationship with Loretta Rickenbacker, a convicted felon known to be actively engaged in criminal conduct, including the possession and sale of illegal drugs, prostitution, and larceny. Substantiated. Number two, that Sergeant Burke engaged in sexual acts in police vehicles while on duty and in uniform. Substantiated. Number three, that Sergeant Burke failed to safeguard his service weapon in other departmental property. Substantiated. To clarify this last point, Lorita told investigators that Burke once lent her his department-issued vehicle with his gun still inside. Lorita confessed that she was in love with Burke. She made it clear that she didn't want any of her statements to harm him in any way. Here's Long Island attorney John Ray, who once represented Lorita Rickenbacker. Burke's history, which has come to me from various witnesses, is, uh, is pretty raunchy. He undoubtedly uh, had a relationship with Lorita Rickenbacker. Lorita was a troubled young lady, attractive in, you know, at her time, and uh, she worked the Albany Avenue area of, of uh, Amityville Wyandanche, and Burke met her there and hooked up with her and then uh, made her his paramour for several years. Ultimately, Burke's behavior constituted, quote, conduct unbecoming an officer, end quote, a cause for discipline under the police department's rules and procedures. For his dereliction of duties, Burke lost 15 vacation days, and he was transferred out of the precinct. By all accounts, Burke's punishment for his wrongdoings appeared to be inconsequential. The internal affairs report was swept under the rug for years. Here's Rob Trotta again. I didn't put two and two together. I heard that a guy was caught with a prostitute and he was moved from one precinct to another. You didn't really know what the case was. All you heard that he was caught, you know, maybe with a prostitute or doing something wrong with a prostitute. That's the only thing I remember. In hindsight, Rob Trotta wasn't surprised to hear about Burke's unethical conduct because Trotta had personally encountered something even more disturbing. One of the first times I remember meeting Jimmy Burke, he was a sergeant in the fourth precinct at the time. And he comes up to me and says, Trot, I heard about you. You're a heavy hitter. You know, you lead the county in arrests. I look at your numbers. I want you to work for me one day, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't know who the guy was from home. And then the next conversation was the most shocking conversation maybe I've had in my entire life. And he leans over and says, you know, hey, you know where I can get a snuff film? Let me stop here for a second. As Trotta tells this story, you have to wonder. How would anyone react if someone asked where to find a snuff film? And was James Burke being serious? And I said, I didn't know what a snuff film was. I said, what's a snuff film? And he describes in detail that, you know, it's when you're having sex with a woman and you, you made a hand, like you blow her head off or you kill her and her body does, res, responds in a, um, you know, a physiological way that pleasures you. And he went into, you know, pretty graphic detail about 
what a woman does, what a person does when they're dying. And I said, no, Sarge, I don't. You know, and I was sort of like, obviously taken back by it. And I just walked away. And to this day, I, you know, I think, was it a test to see how I was, you know, what, how I respond, or, you know, I don't know why. I certainly didn't know him well enough for someone to say that to me. And it was a little odd. Uh, it was more than a little odd. It was very odd. Hearing this crazy story, I think back to what my friend Chris found inside Burke's duffel bag in episode one. What was on the DVD? I saw a guy with a mask on torturing a girl, a prostitute, right? She was tied behind her back. Her makeup was running down her face. She was scared to death. It looked like they were going to kill her. It was a snuff film. Knowing what we know now about James Burke, it's hard to ignore that there's something very, very wrong here. If verified, could these snuff films be a smoking gun that would lead us to the sex workers found murdered by the Long Island serial killer? Publicly, Burke could look you in the eye and you think he was the greatest thing in the whole world. But privately, he was a totally different person. And I know that from personal experience and from what other people would tell me. I mean, it, it was, you know, he was a, uh, he was a psychopath. And there's not a doubt in my mind, you know, that clearly there's something wrong. Up until last year, in New York State, internal affairs investigations were not made public. But in 2013, after Burke was already made chief, and well into the Lisk investigation, the report was anonymously leaked to Newsday. How does a guy get on the cover of Newsday for having sex with prostitutes and not be fired by the county executive. I mean, in 2013, he's on the cover of Newsday for having sex with a prostitute in uniform, in a marked police car, and he's not fired. It actually says, did have sex while on duty in a marked police vehicle. Substantiated. They don't even demote him. Can you believe that? How, on what planet is this okay? And the county executive, Steve Ballone, stands by him and says, I stand by him. I mean, and what, is that, what message are you sending to the rank and file cops of this department when you allow this to go on? It's absurd. Here's Paula Rocco from Newsday. It appeared at the time that the county executive liked the job he was doing, that he was um, the county legislators uh, strongly supported him publicly. Um, the, you know, he was supposedly um, doing things that were being characterized as changing the direction of the police department. Outwardly, Burke knew how to play the part. He portrayed a veneer of polished professionalism. First and foremost, what I want to do is recognize the men and women of the Suffolk County Police Department. Uh, in the 32 days that I have served as the chief of the department, I am very, very impressed with the work that the officers do, be it life-saving, arrests, the detectives, the investigation they do is extraordinarily impressive. And I want to acknowledge the men and women of the Suffolk County Police Department. It is truly the biggest honor of my life to serve as their chief, making Suffolk County the safest place in America. Behind closed doors, it was becoming clear that sex, not safety, was his obsession. But did this obsession taint his ability to investigate a serial murderer?
Here again is Newsday reporter Paul LaRocco, commenting on Burke being hired as chief of police while the department was in the thick of the Lisk investigation. In a way, it's, it's kind of, you know, ironic that he was put in that position right at that time because a major crime involving sex workers, you know, that, that should have been the focus of, of the police department. That police department is now being led by someone who had things to hide and you weren't hearing anything about the, the Gilgo Beach case at the same time. You know, I think the public, you know, would be fair to wonder, you know, um, was that case, the Google Beach case, getting all the attention it should have been getting? And if someone else had been in that position, would it have been, you know, getting more attention? With no arrests made in the case, the families of the victims were desperately waiting for justice for their loved ones. Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartholomew, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Amber Costello, Jessica Taylor, and Valerie Mack. James Burke assured them that the Suffolk County Police Department was utilizing every resource available to solve the case. But behind the scenes, a very different story had already started to unfold following Burke's promotion to chief. This was the biggest case uh, that the police department, I think Suffolk County Police Department was ever involved in. So certainly it was the biggest case that I was ever involved in. And yes, there was a tremendous sense of urgency because we're dealing with a serial killer who's more than likely going to kill again. That's Dominic Verone, a three-star chief of detectives and 39-year veteran of the force. He oversaw the Long Island Serial Killer Task Force for 15 months. Verone remembers the heavy responsibility he felt when he spoke to his detectives on January 6, 2011, right after the first four victims had been found on Gilgo Beach. I asked Dominic to read the speech he delivered to his team at that time. The public has never heard this. First of all, I am sure you all recognize the importance of your assignment. You are involved in one of the biggest cases of your careers one of the biggest cases in the department's history. I tell you right now, this case will be solved by the Suffolk County Police Department, by the Homicide Task Force. That said, we will utilize any and every tool at our disposal. That includes other detectives, cops, and other agencies. The FBI has pledged their assistance. Their expertise and direction becomes more important when we have more details and when our investigation lacks solid leads or direction. Preliminary indications are that the killer is organized, methodical, and calculating. But you will be more organized, more methodical, and more calculating. Remember, our perp is watching and listening. We have to have a sense of urgency. He may kill again. He's a serial killer maniac. He has forfeited his right to walk this planet, and he must pay for his crimes. Good luck. God bless. Months later, Verone's marching orders, along with everything else in the department, were about to change. In December 2011, police found their 11th body. And it belonged to the woman whose disappearance had instigated the entire investigation. Shannon Gilbert. I'm awaiting the autopsy results. 
I'm still into this case 100%. Yeah, there are rumors that Chief Burke is going to become the four-star chief or the chief of the department. But I feel that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get along and we're going to get this done. And two days later, on December 15th, I was told, get the hell out. I am told that uh, I have 15 days to put in my retirement papers or be demoted to captain. Very shocking. Punched in the stomach, hit a brick wall. Describe it any way you want to. Um, it was just uh, extremely upsetting and disturbing to me. Even more disturbing and upsetting that their arrogance would not even allow them to talk to me or debrief me and discuss the thoughts that I had and the theories that I had and where I thought the case should go and what we should do in the ensuing months. So Burke is taking over the department. He is making the chief of detectives retire. He's got bodies on the beach, and he's not even talking to the chief of detectives to ask him what he's learned. Ask him, where, where do you think the investigation should go? It was not only the chief of detectives, it was me and, and every other top chief except one. We were all told uh, that we had to be gone in 15 days. The detective supervisors, they got the case. The detective supervisors worked in the special unit of detectives inside the office of district attorney, Tom Spoda. But that was very foolish. I was interacting with the behavioral analysis unit. I had experience with these kind of crimes. The behavioral analysis unit was one of the main resources the FBI was providing to the Suffolk County Police Force. It's one of the investigative tools they use to try and figure out who the killer is by what's known of his behaviors. It's known as the most significant single resource to track down serial killers. The FBI was fully involved, helped us in any way we could. It was of unprecedented magnitude. And Burke told the FBI, the most sophisticated detective agency in the history of the world, to stop helping in the Long Island serial killer investigation. After Verone and his team were gone, Chief Burke put a temporary halt on the physical ground search for more victims in the surrounding area, citing the winter weather. The bodies had been dumped in a tangle of coastline bramble, so the ice and snow made an already difficult task even more daunting. This approach to finding victims was starkly different than the approach Verone had taken when he was in charge of the case. This was an enormous operation, unprecedented uh, within the history of the department and local departments. We, we utilized Nassau County Police, New York State Police, their dog teams, their aviation units, uh, marine units, divers, uh, all out exhaustive search. We pulled out the police academy class to go shoulder to shoulder to traverse various areas for any kind of evidence. It was a massive, massive, coordinated undertaking. As Burke settled into his role as chief, he continued to unsettle the officers below him with what many found to be a divisive management style. 
I think at the time, we were hearing it in a different way because people were afraid to speak out against him, but we were hearing it in a way of, oh, we're taking the department in a new direction. These are people who we just don't think are right for these roles anymore. They were part of this last guard, and we've called the department dysfunctional, so now we have to, we have to change things. But, you know, in retrospect, it, it does appear that he elevated people who were loyal to him and people who were not, um, you know, were, you know, kind of had no choice but to you know, retire and go away. And that included Dominic Verone. We now know how controlling Chief Burke was in the ensuing months and years, and how he controlled the department, and how he intimidated and, and, and many of the rank and file were fearful of him. So much so, they were afraid to talk to me, call me, email me, it was very difficult for me to convey some of my thoughts on what I think should have been done with this case. I was able to, I was able to get the main point, some of the main points across, but it was difficult because I, along with others, were considered persona non grata. Geraldine Hart, the current police commissioner of Suffolk County, was at the time a senior supervisor in the FBI's Long Island office. She remembers seeing Burke surround himself with yes men, and she has thoughts on what motivated Burke to do so. It was about keeping power, uh, keeping outside agencies out, um, very insular in nature. He had a handful of people that he surrounded himself with that he, um, he was acting in a corrupt manner and did not want outside agencies involved. And I can tell you, you know, having worked organized crime cases for 15 years. It was really almost like a small mob. Hart also witnessed something even more alarming. Burke kicking the FBI out of the Long Island serial killer investigation. The FBI was not involved in the Gilgo Beach investigation. Uh, they had been uh, removed by then Chief Burke. Uh, so there was no involvement whatsoever. How detrimental was it for James Burke to remove the FBI from the Long Island serial killer investigation? It certainly was detrimental. Uh, you know, as we know, the FBI brings uh, a host of different resources to the table. So not having them involved um, really did set the investigation back, certainly. How far back do you think? It's difficult to say. Uh, you know, as we know, technology and, uh, and science is, is ever changing and ever evolving, and it's important to keep on top of that. So to really to have them out of the picture uh, for that, for that extent, extensive amount of time was very detrimental, but certainly. In retrospect, it was harmful. Burke sent a damaging message to the detectives on the case. As a leader of this department, you emphasize certain things. How do we make sure that we're utilizing all the technology that we can? So I know that from my position uh, as a leader of this department, that's what I have emphasized, and I don't think that that was happening under Chief Burke. It was really hard to imagine uh, what the thinking was on that. I mean, understanding the success that, uh, you know, that departments have had with the partnerships federally, uh, it's hard to imagine why, why he would want to do that um, as a leader of the 11th largest police department in the nation, uh, not to have those vital partnerships. Just uh, hard to understand. Rob Trotta, who spent years working on an FBI violent crimes task force with the Suffolk PD, has his own opinion on what motivated Burke. I think Jimmy Burke hated the FBI, the DEA, the ATF, the IRS, anything federal he wanted nothing to do with because those were the only people who could get him. With, 
With the exception of those groups, those federal organizations, he was the king. In other words, no one inside Burke's own department was going to squeal about his indiscretions. And Burke didn't want any outsiders sniffing around and potentially finding his dirty laundry. If Burke was running his administration like it was the mob, without oversight from the feds, what was he hiding? And how did Burke become so powerful in the first place? How did he rise up to the top with so many dirty dealings on his internal affairs report? It turns out someone higher up was looking out for James Burke. Next on Unraveled, the Long Island serial killer. The young prosecutor was Tom Spoda. And the star witness in the case was a very young 14-year-old Jimmy Burke. That whole thing which happened 35 years ago is something that could be the catalyst. Well, the thing is, once you make a deal with the devil, you can't unmake it. So our interest, of course, is James Burke. And is there more to his involvement than what's known? At this point, the sands of time have washed over everything. Everything with Burke, botching the Long Island serial killer investigation, everything keeps coming back to this. If you have information or anything you want to share about the Long Island serial killer case, we'd like to hear from you. Email us at unraveledtips at gmail.com. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Kuntz, along with myself, Billy Jensen, and Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID, Thomas Cutler. Additional producing and writing by Margaret Aronson. Our editor is Jared Monaco. You can submit anonymous tips to the Suffolk County Police Department by either calling Crime Stoppers at 1-800-220-TIPS or by visiting their website, gilgonews.com. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. Make sure to check for Episode 3 next week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And it helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening and for your support. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.